you will, turn again to Luke 22. As we have made our way through the book, we've come now to Luke 22, 47, and we're going to read all the way through to the end of the chapter, verse 71. So Luke 22, 47 through 71. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of elders of the peoples assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Father, pray that you would come and help us. We want, as we were just singing, to at Jesus' feet humbly fall and crown him Lord of all. We want to worship him. We want to be in awe of him tonight as we consider your word about your son. So help us by your spirit. Now speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that's before us this evening starts out quite badly, doesn't it? Verses 47 through 30 through 53, I should say, one of Jesus' own disciples, as we saw, hands him over to his enemies in exchange for money. And then things only get worse beginning in verse 54 because another disciple now denies three times that he even knows Jesus. And then in verses 63 through 65, the situation gets uglier still as Jesus' enemies now have free reign to do what they've been wanting to do all along. And the result is that he is mocked and beaten and blasphemed and so on. And so what we have here in these last verses of Luke 22 is a downward spiral of tremendous proportions. Jesus 
goes from being ministered to by an angel in verse 43 to being delivered over into the hands of mockers. He goes in the previous passage from being bowed on his face in prayer to now being bowed on his face by clubs and kicks and punches to that face. And so by all normal human expectations, we would think that things would just continue to get worse as we read on. That's what we would anticipate if we were, as we contemplated on Sunday morning, reading the book of Luke for the very first time. We would expect Jesus uh, to have just laid there and to see blood trickling from the side of his mouth and his eyes glazed over in a distant stare and lying motionless, just waiting for death to come. People don't just recover from the kind of emotional and physical beating that he is taking in these verses. And yet, that expectation is precisely what makes these last few verses of the chapter so amazing, verses 66 through 71. Instead of laying there, broken and defeated, after he had been betrayed by one disciple and denied by another and abused by these soldiers, Jesus actually comes out of this smelling like a rose. Instead of his accusers backing him into a corner in these final verses of the chapter, Jesus actually seems to be holding court in their presence, doesn't he? At the end of the chapter, he who has been beaten and bedraggled and accused and so on now seems to be in complete control of the situation. Jesus was betrayed and then denied and then abused and yet, at the end of it all, victorious. And that's going to be the pattern, really, for the rest of the book of Luke. Jesus continues in these last two chapters to be knocked down, and he continues to get back up again. And not only does he get back up, but he keeps getting back up stronger than before. Not physically stronger, of course. But every time Jesus' enemies think that they may have finally beaten him or mocked him into submission, he opens his mouth and powerfully speaks the truth to them again. And this remains true throughout these last chapters of Luke, all the way until his resurrection from the dead becomes the great and final answer to his accusers. So Jesus, in this passage, and really in the Gospels in general, is betrayed, he's denied, he's abused, and he's victorious at the end of it all. And tonight, we're going to work our way through each of those phases here in these final 25 verses of Luke 22. Betrayed, denied, abused, and victorious. So first, from verses 47 through 53, observe with me how Jesus was, first of all, betrayed. Betrayed. What an ugly thing Judas' betrayal was. That's the first thing that we should notice. It was ugly. Yes, as Jesus said back in verse 22, it was all part of God's plan for our salvation. And so in a backdoor kind of way, we thank God for everything that we read in this chapter. We thank God for how things played out. And yet our main reaction when we read of Judas handing Jesus over with a kiss and doing so for money, our main reaction should be disgust. Judas' actions here should make our stomachs turn. And then also Judas' actions should be for us a warning, shouldn't they? Because remember, Judas was, verse 47, one of the twelve. And I believe Luke points that out to us for a reason. This is the second time Luke's pointed it out in this chapter. And Luke is not pointing out that Judas is one of the twelve because we didn't know that already. On the contrary, we have seen Judas all throughout this book as one of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. So why does Luke take the time to tell us again that this Judas was one of the twelve? 
perhaps as a reminder that if even one of the twelve could turn out to be a devil, then what might any one of us become apart from God's sustaining grace? You see, Judas stands across the ages as the chief reminder for all professing Christians everywhere of the danger of falling away, of the danger that even people in the inner circle of the church can actually prove to be devils, unbelievers, opponents of Jesus. And therefore, when we read about Judas, we must all take heed and consistently, as Paul says, examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. And you may think, well, of course, I know that's what the preacher is supposed to say when we study Judas. If even Judas could betray Jesus, then what about you? And that is what the preacher is supposed to say. But there's a reason why every preacher that you've heard who's faithful to the scriptures, when he comes to Judas, says what I've just said. There's a reason for that. Because people who seem to be followers, many of them fall away, and some of them fall away horrifically, like this Judas. And then notice also, still in verse 47, that Judas betrayed the Lord with a kiss. What's the deal with that? Why would he betray him that way? Is this just a deliberate slap in Jesus' face? Is he just mocking Jesus, perhaps? Or maybe this was an attempt to betray Jesus while looking as little as possible like a betrayer. I'm not sure which one it is. But one thing that I do know is that there are many people who betray Jesus in history and today and who do so, as it were, with a kiss, who betray Jesus in such a way as to look as little as possible like they're really betraying him. We've said this at several points uh, along the way, especially in recent sermons, because there are so many people turning against Jesus here. And what we said is this, those who deny Jesus... Today, those who deny the biblical accounts about him, his virgin birth, his bodily resurrection, his miracles, his claim to be the one and only way to God, those who deny those things often deny those things while trying to look as little as possible like they're actually betraying Jesus. People don't just come right out and say that they don't believe in the resurrection. They just let it slip in sideways, mixed with flowery religious language. So they betray Jesus, but they do so in such a way that people who aren't paying careful attention might not realize what's actually happening. They betray Jesus with a kiss. And Judas, I believe, serves as a reminder to beware of such betrayers. There will always be people who want to betray Jesus, who want to hand him over and treat him as less valuable than he really is. And many times these men and women come, as it were, from among the twelve, from within the church, and they do so, when they do so, they usually betray Jesus, not with bold-faced words of condemnation or ridicule, but, so to speak, with a kiss. And so we must always be on guard for ourselves and for those who teach us. But then, while we're looking still at Jesus' betrayal, we should also notice how Jesus responded to it. And especially, we should notice how he responded to his betrayal in contrast with how his disciples responded. What did Jesus' followers do when they saw that their master was being betrayed and badmouthed and so on? Well, they started a little bit of an uprising, didn't they? We see that here in verse 49. They put their hands on their swords. And at least one of them actually wielded the sword, verse 50, and lopped off the ear of one of the members of Judas's posse. 
Incidentally, as Alistair Begg points out, this man, this particular disciple who wielded his sword was either a really good swordsman so that he could cut off something so small as an ear with a single blow, or he was a really bad swordsman in that he was trying to split this man's head in two and missed his target by a full six inches. But you'll notice that Jesus is upset with him in verse 51, not because of Peter's swordsmanship. Jesus is upset because Peter had wielded the sword to begin with. Jesus' response to his betrayers is different from the response of his disciples, and that's what I want to point out. Instead of encouraging Peter and the others in their retaliation, Jesus stopped them. And he even healed the man who had gotten more out of this exchange with Jesus' disciples than he had bargained for. And we should note this and note it well in our own circumstances. Because sometimes when we see men and women betraying Jesus, blaspheming him, teaching false doctrine and so on, our first response may be to go to battle with them. Our initial response is often to begin arguing or name-calling or what have you. But just notice that in this case, Jesus' initial response was to show kindness. And while I realize that at other times Jesus himself responded to his critics with scathing rebukes or by turning over tables or by showing that their arguments and their attacks were utterly foolish and childish. And while I also realize that there may therefore be sometimes a need for us to debate or rebuke or show people's beliefs to be foolish and childish, let us also remember from this passage that there is a time when we deal with betrayers and blasphemers to heal their wounds, to put the ear back on the side of their head, as it were, to show them kindness, to return them good for their evil. And it requires real wisdom on our parts to know which occasions require which responses. And we should pray that God gives it to us. But perhaps we'll be moved to pity these blasphemers if we can bring ourselves to see often that they are terribly frightened of Jesus. Wasn't that the case with these men who came out with swords and clubs to arrest him? I think if you think it through, you'll see that that's exactly what it was. They were afraid. That's why they came with the swords and the clubs. They didn't come with swords and clubs, as Jesus reminds them in verses 52 and 53, because Jesus had an entourage of bodyguards around them, or because he was inherently dangerous, or because his disciples were known as renegades. No. All Jesus and his disciples had been doing was going around healing people and teaching people. And Jesus says, I've been in the temple all this time, and you didn't see any need to come at me with weapons. What's the deal now? Well, the deal now is that these men were afraid of what might happen when they went out to arrest Jesus that night. Not because Jesus had ever done anything to them, but because they knew somehow that this man is different. This man has power. And so behind all of their bravado, their knees were knocking together and butterflies were in their stomachs. They weren't quite sure what might happen when they came face to face with Jesus. That's why they came with all their regalia. And I just remind you that the same is true of many people who blaspheme and who do so angrily today as well. The reason why people, many of them get so angry when you talk with them about the Lord is because deep inside they are afraid. They're afraid you might be right and they don't want to hear it and so they shout you down. They're afraid of what might happen to them when they die and they don't want to think about death and so they argue with you and change the subject. They're afraid that Jesus might actually get hold of them and turn them into choir boys. 
And so they come out with all their verbal clubs and their swords ready for a fight because they know that Jesus might just be able to draw them in. And because they know that if they want to continue on in their sin, and of course that's what most of these kinds of folks want to do, if they want to do that, then they know they're going to have to fight tooth and nail against conviction, against truth, and against the gospel. And so perhaps that's why your relative gets so mad at you when you speak to her about Jesus. She's not really mad at you. She's afraid of him. And in order to keep herself from being brought under his spell, she comes out guns blazing. And that's why kindness is often the best response. If you fight back against a person like that, you just give her another excuse to think that Jesus might actually be harmful to her. But if you show her the kindness of Christ, as Jesus did to this slave here in Luke 22, then she will be perhaps ashamed more than anything else and may begin to see her need for a forgiving, gentle Savior whom you represent. So that's the first portion of the passage. Jesus was betrayed. And there's a great deal by way of warning and by way of example in Jesus' response for us to learn from that portion. Jesus was betrayed, but then in verses 54 through 62, we see secondly that he was denied. He was denied by Peter. Betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter. And Peter, like Judas, of course, serves as a strong warning of what can happen to us if we're not diligent to walk closely with the Lord. But the warnings that each of these men provide are slightly different kinds of warnings. Judas is a warning that one may be a disciple of Jesus outwardly and yet inwardly be no disciple at all. Judas is a warning, in other words, to people who may prove to be only pretend Christians. But Peter's different. Peter is not a pretend Christian. Peter is a warning that even people who are genuine followers of Jesus can sometimes do incredibly sinful and foolish things. Isn't that true? What Peter did was indeed very foolish and very sinful, wasn't it? In fact, his foolishness actually began back in verse 33. Or at least his voicing of his foolishness began there. It probably began, it certainly began before he was born because we're all conceived in iniquity but we see his foolishness bubbling to the surface well before we get to the passage we're considering tonight we see it in verse 33 where he declared that he was not going to be a turncoat he was one of the strong ones he was willing to go to prison and even to die with jesus but he didn't know his own heart did he peter didn't know how weak and fragile his faith really was but by the time we get to verse 54 we begin to see how weak and fragile his faith really was this one who was supposedly willing to suffer and die with jesus now in verse 54 is following at a distance he hadn't stood strong when the posse showed up after all had he after an initial swipe of his sword he had cowered and run away just like the rest peter didn't go with jesus to the chief's house handcuffed Peter wasn't side by side with Jesus being prodded forward with a spear poking into the small of his back. No, he was safely following at a distance. He wasn't as strong as he thought he was. And again, he's a warning to us. Now, Lord willing, you and I really would, if it came to it, be willing to be imprisoned for Jesus' sake or even to die for him. Lots of Christians are and have been, including Peter, later in his life. But the warning is, let's not be boastful about that. 
For who knows how you or I might actually respond in the hour of testing? Who knows what might happen if people with swords and clubs came into the room now and said, if you run away and deny Jesus, you live. If you stand up and claim Jesus, you die. Who knows what we might do? Our faith may not be as strong, perhaps, as we like to think that it is. In fact, just think about how many times you've made some promise to the Lord or some resolve within your own soul and then found yourself within 24 hours having failed miserably to do the thing that you resolved and said that you were going to do and something a lot easier to do than to go to prison with Jesus or to die with him. And so we're all far more like Peter than we wish we were. And if Peter was overconfident in verse 33... God had the perfect remedy for him here in verses 55 through 60. Did you ever wonder why it was that God allowed Peter to deny Jesus three times before he brought him to a place where he wept bitterly? This wasn't happenstance, was it? No, Jesus prophesied in advance back in verse 34 that Peter would deny him, not once, not twice, but fully three different times. But why? Why in God's plan did he allow Peter to slide that far? Jesus could have looked at him after the first time. Jesus could have stopped him short after the second time. But he let him go three times. Why? Well, I don't know all the reasons. But I wonder if part of the reason might have been so that Peter would finally see what was really in his heart. This overconfident man. If he'd simply denied Jesus once, he might have just chalked that up to nervousness. And even if he'd only denied Jesus twice, he might have told himself that, well, it was just the heat of the moment that got to him that second time. But when he did it the third time, there was no doubting that the problem was Peter and not just his circumstances. In fact, you may have noticed that he had an hour in between the second and the third denial. He had plenty of time to think, plenty of time to gather himself. And when he did it again after that hour to gather himself, the problem was clearly Peter. Not the people, not the situation. Peter, at this point in his life, loved his own security more than he loved Jesus. And I believe that Jesus let him fall these three times so that Peter would have no question in mind in his mind <coughs> that he was a basically weak and pathetic and needy character. And the same is true of you and me. Why does God allow us sometimes to fall into the same predicaments and sins time after time after time? He could just rescue us and bring about real change after the first or second failure. He could cast us the kind of glance that Peter got in verse 61 and break our hearts after the first time, but he doesn't usually do it that way. Very often, instead, God lets us fall repeatedly into the same sins before he gives us one of those looks that Peter got that changes everything. But why? Why doesn't he give us the look the first time? Why doesn't he break our hearts after only one or two stumbles into sin? Well, again, perhaps so that in falling the third time or the twelfth time or the twenty-first time, we might finally come to the realization that the problem is not just that we slipped up or that we were overcome by the heat of the moment. We fall repeatedly in the same sins so that we can come to realize that the problem is us. In other words, when you fall again and again into the same thing, eventually the common denominator in every instance proves to be not the circumstances, but you. 
You're the one that's there every time. And so the problem must be you or me. We love ourselves so often more than we love God. And what a mercy when God allows us to fall a sufficient enough number of times that we finally realize that we're the problem. That our faith is not what we like to believe it is. Neither was Peter's. But praise God that Jesus gave Peter that famous look in verse 61. Praise God that Jesus can break our hearts with even a single glance. And praise God that he does it, not in order to bring us to despair, but so that we might come to repentance. Isn't that what was happening in verse 62? Peter was not weeping for despair. He was reaping, weeping for repentance. Peter is actually right where he needs to be in verse 62, where some of us sometimes need to be, where all of us sometimes need to be, weeping for repentance. And Peter is a reminder here that real faith is often demonstrated more by repentance than it is by resolves. Real faith is often demonstrated more by contrition over what we've done wrong than it is by confidence in what we want to do right. Genuine faith is not usually the kind that boldly proclaims how we are ready to suffer and die for Jesus. Genuine faith is the kind that realizes how much we needed him to suffer and die for us because we're so weak and so frail. So Peter, as he weeps bitterly in verse 62, provides us with a most basic portrait of faith. Faith is not confidence in our fortitude It's desperation for Jesus' forgiveness. That's what we see in verse 62. And now having wept bitterly, finally, Peter is almost ready to be the great preacher of forgiveness and grace that we see in the book of Acts. So Jesus was betrayed by a phony disciple. He was denied by a genuine disciple. And then thirdly, and by those who made no pretense at being disciples, Jesus was abused, abused. We see this in verses 63 through 65. The men who were holding Jesus in custody, probably a mixture of Roman soldiers and Jewish officials, were mocking him, verse 63, beating him, verse 63, blaspheming him, verse 65. (coughs) And they made it very clear in verse 64 that they thought that this was no prophet at all, that he was a charlatan. For surely a real prophet would not only be able to tell in spite of the blindfold who was hitting him, but a real prophet would actually have been able to call down help from heaven so that the beating would stop. This was the game these men were playing. And by this point it would seem that all the fear that they had once felt had evaporated. And Jesus' face was being, as Isaiah prophesied, marred more than any man. He was being abused. And there are just two observations that we should make concerning this abuse the first is that we should remind ourselves that if jesus was abused in the first century by people who had seen his miracles and heard his teaching firsthand then we should never be surprised if his name and his word and his people are dragged through the mud today and yet some christians are sometimes surprised by this sometimes we act as though it's a strange thing that people should blaspheme god's name or make a mockery of jesus we act as though we can't believe it But not only should we believe it, we should expect it. That is to say that while we should surely be appalled by blasphemy, we should never 
ever be surprised by it. The world hates Jesus. Make no mistake about that. Many people I know may seem as though they're indifferent to Jesus, as though they neither love him nor hate him, as though they can either take him or leave him, but it's not actually so. Jesus himself said, if you're not for me, you're against me. And that's true of, even of people who seem neutral. The only reason why any of us ever seems neutral about Jesus is because Jesus has evidently not really gotten his fingers too deep into our business yet. But once he does so, every person in this world will either be very, very agitated or will bow the knee and repent and believe. There's only two ways. So don't be surprised if Jesus, when he's actually held out to this world, is either abused or hated or if he's loved. But specifically here, don't be surprised when he's abused. If they hated him in the first century, people will hate him in the 21st as well. That's the first thing to notice about this abuse. But the other thing, the far more important thing to say <coughs> regarding the abuse of Jesus is simply this. Luke twenty-two, sixty-three through 65 is part of our salvation. These verses are the beginning of the atonement. In other words, it would seem that God's wrath toward our sin was already beginning to be poured out upon Jesus here in these moments. Yes, the key event for the pouring out of God's wrath was the cross. But Isaiah 53, you may remember, prophesies not only about Jesus' crucifixion, but also about his scourging and his bruising and so on, the things that we're reading about here. And Isaiah says that it was as a result of all of these things that we are healed. So when Jesus is beaten and bruised and whipped and crowned with thorns, we're already seeing the beginning of the atonement. Jesus is already absorbing the first blows that we deserve for our sins. So it's not as though salvation only began to be purchased when Jesus was hung up on the cross. The cross was the key moment. The cross was the culminating moment. Without the cross, there is no salvation. But the payment for our sins was already beginning to be made here at the end of Luke 22. All of Jesus' suffering was for us. All of his suffering is what we deserve. And we praise God that he went through it for us. Not just the nails and the suffocation on the cross, but also the scourging and the thorns and the rods and the fists and the spit and the cursing. We sing man of sorrows and we don't just sing lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. But we also, before that, Sing about these very verses, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So we're already getting a glimpse as these verses make us say hallelujah of the fact that Jesus, in spite of the abuse and the betrayal and the denial, was actually victorious. By suffering in these ways, he was accomplishing the very thing that God had sent him in the world to do. He was saving sinners. And that's the greatest victory that Jesus ever accomplished. But the fact that Jesus was victorious here in Luke 22 actually becomes all the more evident as we read on into the final six verses of the chapter. So let's do that now together. Jesus was betrayed, denied, abused, and yet victorious. How is Jesus victorious here in Luke 22? Three answers and then we're finished. First, as we were just saying, Jesus was victorious because of his suffering. 
Because he suffered, he was victorious. Jesus' suffering, beginning here in Luke 22, was more than just the betrayal and the denial and the abuse. The abuse, it was those things, but Jesus' suffering was also God's plan for the salvation of sinners. And that's the greatest victory, as I said, that Jesus has accomplished. The glorification of his Father in the salvation of his people through his suffering on their behalf. And it began right here in Luke 22. So Jesus was victorious because of his suffering here in Luke 22. But then observe also that Jesus was victorious in the midst of his suffering. In the midst of it. Notice in verse 66 (coughs) that Jesus was facing the educated elite of his day. The council of the elders. And not only were they the educated elite, but they also wielded a great deal of political power that might come back and haunt him if, it didn't, if he didn't fit their mold. And yet, we don't see his knees buckling in the face of their questioning, do we? We don't see him worrying that he wouldn't have an academic or intellectual enough answer for them. Nor do we see him worrying that they might actually do something to him if he offends their sensibilities. Instead, what we see is Jesus just quoting the Bible to them. Reminding them in verse 69 that they will soon be very certain that he really is whom he says he is. And that's a lesson to us. Surely the Lord could have given a philosophical, intellectual discourse that would have knocked these elitist socks off, couldn't he? Of course, he is all wisdom. Or surely he could have just beaten around the bush and been nondescript enough to save his own hide, too. But he didn't do that. He just gave them the scripture. He just told them that he was indeed the son of God. And he wasn't embarrassed to say those things flat out. And we should take a page from his book. We needn't be afraid of the powers that be either. Whether they be intellectuals who make us feel foolish for our beliefs. Or whether they be our bosses who make us feel threatened for trying to live out our faith at work or whether they be teachers who make us worry that our faith expressed in a school assignment will result in a lower grade. Jesus knew that in the end, he and his people would win, and so he wasn't afraid to just say what he believed. And we should learn from him. We should be like him. We should imitate him. We should have confidence in God and be bold in our faith. Not obnoxious in our faith, not bombastic, not antagonistic, not wielding a sword with Peter, not looking for trouble. That's not what I'm saying. But when potential persecution comes, we mustn't hedge either. We mustn't try to be clever and to make people think that, oh, well, these Christians, they're really actually pretty smart people after all. No, that's not our business. We mustn't sugarcoat things either. Rather, we should just be like Jesus, who simply, straightforwardly, calmly, stated the truth of the Bible, told them who he was, come what may, and who was victorious, therefore, even in the midst of his suffering. He did not allow the potential for difficulty to dampen his testimony. He was victorious instead. And then finally notice that Jesus was not only victorious because of his suffering and in the midst of his suffering, but he was victorious finally in spite of his suffering. Because, as we said off the top, most human beings would have just rolled over and given up after what happened in these verses, wouldn't they? Sold to assassins by one of your closest associates? 
denied by an even closer one, and then beaten up by professional soldiers? After all this, most of us would have just laid there on the ground and waited to die, right? But not Jesus, no. Jesus, after all the mental and emotional and physical anguish that he endured in verses 47 through 65, got back up and started preaching. Isn't that what we find him doing in verses 66 through the end of the chapter? He starts proclaiming truth to his accusers. He begins convincing them of their sin, prophesying his own victory. And it's an amazing thing to see. Here's our Savior, fully human, yes. Tempted like we are, yes. Frail and weak in his physical body, yes. And yet with an indomitable spirit, an unquenchable ability to keep obeying his Father no matter what the obstacles. And what hope there is in seeing Jesus victorious like that here in Luke 22. Yes, we may falter like Peter. We may stumble and stumble badly. We may keep silent when we ought to speak out. Or we may wield our swords when we ought to be showing kindness. We may fail and be defeated in any number of ways, but we have a Savior who's never defeated. We have a Savior who is victorious in spite of all the suffering and the temptation and the opportunities to quit. And it's on His faithfulness, not our own, that our hope relies. If we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2, He remains faithful. And if we, like Peter, are defeated, Jesus remains victorious.